This is Dr. Brent Schillinger, along with my colleague, Dr. Abby Strauss. The topic today, high-dose buprenorphine in the emergency department. And we have a couple of esteemed guests, Dr. Andrew Herring, who is the lead author of a uh, groundbreaking article in the JAMA Network Open on this very topic, and uh, Ariana Campbell, physician assistant, who works closely with Dr. Herring. Uh, Dr. Herring is an attending emergency physician and associate director of research at Highland Hospital Alameda Health System in Oakland, California. So my first question, what is high dose? Is it good or bad? The FDA limit is, depending on how you read it, somewhere around 8 milligrams to 12 milligrams on day one, whereas the therapeutic dose for most patients is around 16 milligrams or 24 milligrams. So there's kind of a disconnect there between the optimal therapeutic dose and the original idea of what the ideal first dose is. In the 20 years or more that we've learned in working with buprenorphine, what we've seen is that this concept of a ceiling, respiratory depression, and sedation effect that was experimentally described way back in the 90s, even earlier, has just borne out in clinical practice so that there was an opportunity to update the treatment protocols that you could rapidly achieve a therapeutic dose where people achieve the full benefit of relieving craving, relieving withdrawal, and providing a blockade against overdose risk. You didn't have to do that over three days. You could do it in two hours. That would be a patient benefit and assistant benefit because it just could happen more quickly and more efficiently in urgent cares or ERs or outpatient clinics. Who is indicated? Who's contraindicated for this approach? That's so important to think about. While buprenorphine is incredibly safe, it's a really remarkable molecule, it isn't perfect. If someone already has a lot of benzodiazepine, alcohol, barbiturate, other intoxicant on board, that well-established stealing effect kind of goes away. If you are also intoxicated on a benzodiazepine and you get a high dose of buprenorphine on top of it, there's no guarantee that that person wouldn't have clinically significant respiratory depression. I wouldn't do this on people that are in front of you intoxicated on the benzodiazepine. If they use benzodiazepines, that in itself is not a contraindication. It's really if you're seeing that there's a high active level of benzodiazepine in their blood that I would be careful. That's one big bucket. The second big group is really very specifically for emergency and hospitalist or ICU physicians is that if you're very ill, you know, we take care of people who are very sick, they have renal failure, they have sepsis, those folks, they're very sensitive to bup. Their withdrawal will be treated fairly easily with lower doses and they, and high doses could be, you could run into trouble. I don't trust them. So if someone has sepsis and heart failure and COPD, and they're already need maxpatory respiratory drive, that's not the person that I'm going to be using a high dose induction strategy on. You're speaking about a broad range to substitute, manage, control, detox, What's your goal with it? And I know it varies with the patient. The immediate goal is to engage them in believing the medical system can help. That's the first goal. Why do you go back to a restaurant? You get treated well, you feel respected, you feel good. That first moment is really not about long-term ideas around addiction. It's really just making them feel well in that moment. So if they're in withdrawal, getting them out of withdrawal quickly, 
in a way that they're like, wow, doctors are great. They can help me. That's the first goal. A lot of unknowns and a lot of variability. Like physicians, for example, many physicians do develop opioid use disorders. Most of them are probably going to have developed that use disorder after adolescence, got through college and med school, well-established executive function, then something happens. Those individuals, their prognosis is very good. Got everything to lose, everything behind them. The concept of long-term abstinence, of, of not being on a maintenance medication and not having opioid of any kind is very high likelihood. Contrast that with someone who starts drinking alcohol in their preteen years. They're consuming cannabis heavily by the time they're 13, using cocaine and Vicodin by the time they're 14. And you're seeing them in their 30s after they've been using heroin and stimulant for the last 20 years. That person might be on a maintenance with buprenorphine for most of their adult life. And that could be a really, really good outcome for them. I was impressed when I read the article because some of the statistics that you mentioned that 22% were homeless, roughly 40% had some sort of psychiatric disorder, and the rest of them were mixed. One of the things, and, and Brent and I have talked about this with, with our guests, is that with the overdoses that are just skyrocketing, with the deaths, this protocol seems to manage it much more rapidly. That's right. And I keep going back in my mind to, we've interviewed a number of physicians who had opioid problems. And one of them said, it's a game changer. If someone comes in and instead of a slower protocol, you doubled it, tripled it. I don't right. remember the exact numbers. Do you see a better outcome? Do you see less people coming back? Is it a good methodology? To- we don't know. We don't have good comparative data comparing one strategy to another. So I can just speak from my experience okay. that many of the people that we reported on, I don't believe that we'd have any hope at all of keeping them engaged if we had pursued a traditional strategy, because giving them quarter or less of the dose we did, four milligrams, which would be a standard teaching, they just don't feel well. It doesn't fix them. Their withdrawal is still there. They get frustrated and just leave and we never see them again. Anecdotally, I don't understand how anyone could meaningfully work with folks that are in the situation we're talking about and not use higher doses because it's just what they need to feel well. I believe that it really is much more effective at engaging people in treatment than stretching it out over a long period of time. But that's my experience. We've heard frequently that expression in the emergency department, treat them and street them. Does this strategy help change that mentality? Interesting. The emergency encounter, both sides, brings different expectations. When people go to the emergency department, there is an expectation that you're going to fix their symptoms. You've got all the big guns. You've got the big tests. You've got IVs. People don't go in looking for a prescription that they could fill. They go in because they want their belly pain to go away. They want their headache to go away. There's not as much tolerance for partial treatment. On the other side, the physicians and PAs who work there, they're looking for things that work definitively, work quickly, 
and don't lead to a rapid return because they just wore off. If you give someone treatment for their headache and they walk out the door and the headache comes back and then they turn around and return to the ER 20 minutes later, no one's going to be happy with that. Those pressures, which I think of, but more from a human-centric perspective of people want rapid definitive treatment. You want to feel as good as possible, as quickly as possible. Put real pressure on ERs to rethink the slow start and if it was absolutely needed. Could we accelerate this? Once we saw that we could, then all of a sudden this goes from being perhaps kind of a dreaded encounter where you either can't do anything or you do something that's very abstract, give them a prescription they fill later, or give them a little taste of something that makes them feel a little bit better but doesn't really fix them. Take that narrative and turn it into a huge clinical success where people are literally thanking you for saving their life and high-fiving. They feel great. And it's not just a short-term thing. Hey, I made you feel really good right now. You can keep going. This could be the rest of your life. That event where you got nurses and techs and clinical staff all being part of that, observing it, other patients looking over in the, the next bay, seeing it happen. That's that transformative event that drives the whole department to take this on as part of their identity. We exist in the community to help people struggling with opioids. It's meaningful. It helps be part of the solution to this huge epidemic that we know is taking so many lives. I'm really interested in, think about these definitions, urgent care, emergency care, clinic. They're really rather arbitrary. It's a made up line in the sand. People live complicated lives where they have acute needs that come on quickly, and then they have long-term needs. They go back and forth. We really believe that the best transition is no transition at all. That the old model where you're going to screen through, you see the emergency department, see 200 people in a day, and you're like a fisherman, you're going to screen through them, find the opioid use disorder patient, do a DSM scoring criteria, and then refer them to a specialist psychiatrist. That model really isn't how people live their life. And we are really promoting this idea of treating as a team, that the emergency department and the clinic-based clinicians work as a coherent team, providing this clear treatment course, which is primarily defined by continuation of buprenorphine and counseling in whatever way works for that patient. So if a person comes to my clinic, I'm excited. That's great. And then let's say they come to the ER the next week. I'm not trying to keep them out of the ER. I'm trying to keep them on the medication. We co-train with the ER. So when that person does come in, they don't get unnecessary tests. They don't get unnecessary interventions. They're just treated quickly, consistent with the treatment plan. That way we can work with people who are homeless and have psychiatric disease without having to constantly fight with them and corral them into one setting versus another. What sort of reception have you gotten from the ER community and the addiction treatment folks? In my community, we don't have any addiction specialists. We don't have any addiction psychiatrists. We have some emergency department physicians who are now getting boarded in, in addiction medicine because this has been a game changer. The community has been fully behind this, though when I initially did this, I did this just like I would any other program. So when I saw that there was a medication that was better for my patients, I started giving it to them and determined a good follow-up scenario for them. That opened some doors to this outpatient world that we had not appropriately connected with. And now I'm on a texting basis with some of my outpatient partners. And it's becoming more of what Andrew was just talking about, where 
we have this back and forth. The patient just needs to go where they need to go at the time. Sometimes I don't know where to go, so I'm going to go to the emergency department. When they do, we thank them for coming in. We give them high-dose medication initially because they need it. They're really uncomfortable. I know my very first patient, I went with the four milligram dose because that's what I thought I was supposed to do. This is four years ago. And I stared at her because it was called an induction. I thought something was going to happen. And I really was just underdosing her. And she was pregnant. So I felt like I'm inducing a pregnant woman and she's telling me that she's only getting a little bit better. And I was trying to stick with these guidelines that weren't serving her. She came back a couple of days in a row because at the time it was the very start of my program. She helped counsel me on what she needed. And I finally got her up to the appropriate dose for her, which was 24 milligrams. It's really kind of a common sense scenario. I have a lot of patients who were previously taking 16, 24 milligrams, 32 milligrams. So we give them the dose that's appropriate for them at the time when they're in withdrawal. And we do it very quickly to stabilize them. That's what I consider it, stabilizing a patient who is suffering in a way that's appropriate and safe. What I've heard repeatedly is concern about precipitated withdrawal. Could you explain a little bit about what precipitated withdrawal is? You haven't seen very much of that. And is that a surprise? Some of the people who really figured out all of this initial ideas around buprenorphine treatment, like Walter Ling and Sharon Walsh, Eric Strain, others. In the 90s, you have a series of studies, primarily in methadone patients. And at that point, they determined that, well, it seemed like if you're on methadone, if you take two to four milligrams, 20 hours after your last dose, you won't precipitate withdrawal. At other doses higher than that, you'll have this event, precipitated withdrawal, where something along the lines of buprenorphine displaces the opioid without replacing it enough. That's really the study that perhaps guided treatment a little too much. It's a great place to start, but most of us aren't working with methadone. At the same time, there's a whole other set of studies that where people are maintained on morphine. And those folks were administered much larger doses of buprenorphine without any delay at all, you know, after four hours, six hours, and they never saw precipitated withdrawal occur. There's a disconnect between the literature and the rigidity of practice that we're advocating to open up a re-examination of when does precipitated withdrawal really occur? Is it as simplistic as more buprenorphine or higher doses lead to more precipitated withdrawal? One of the factors that we're really interested in is that when precipitated withdrawal does occur, treatment is actually more buprenorphine. How does that work? A lot of questions. I don't want to say that I've got all the answers, but I do think that there's enough out there to really question the dogma that there's only one way to do this. Anecdotally, you know, it's a big anecdote that we published. It is a uncontrolled observational study, so it's definitely flawed and a lot of limitations to it. But you can see everyone we gave buprenorphine to, there was no trend, no signal whatsoever that their rates of precipitate withdrawal were higher in folks who got high dose. We just didn't see that. The rate was low in all groups. I was going to comment on just, is this applicable to a community hospital? Just because I am that community. I'm in a rural area. We're a community-based hospital utilizing this dosing strategy now for almost four years. And we've had very few precipitated withdrawals. And even with our precipitated withdrawals, there's been two. We managed them in the fast track, ones that we had precipitated. We've managed precipitated withdrawals from folks who had precipitated withdrawal from medication that they were prescribed or on the street. And we are able 
able to manage those quickly and effectively by giving big doses of buprenorphine afterwards, amongst other things at times. And it's just that patient-centered approach. So from my perspective, the vast majority of the patients that we treat in my emergency department are treated actually in our fast track area, just because we're able to do it quickly and efficiently with high dose and make patients comfortable quickly. Folks have commented that this was the best experience they've ever had because we stabilize their emergency of being in withdrawal. So your study was done in basically one urban safety net hospital. It was done back in looking at data from 2018. Can we extrapolate this to other settings, non-academic, community-based hospitals? That's one question. The other part of that, this is 2021 versus 2018. Everything now is fentanyl. How does that change the picture? Yeah, those are great questions. The first one I can say, Highland is academic community, kind of a hybrid I would say that the actual emergency department feels very much like a community ER. I think it's very translatable there. The strength of the study is that we included every single person who got buprenorphine for the entire year. There is no cherry picking there. That I think helps its generalizability. You're absolutely right in pointing out that times change. The fentanyl has moved in hard. In 2018 in Oakland, the prevalence of people who were using primarily fentanyl is quite low. Moving forward to that question, how does the prevalence of fentanyl in the consumption patterns of users out there affect choices around dose? That is a big unknown. The first question that we don't know is precipitated withdrawal more likely in someone who's dependent on fentanyl versus dependent on heroin? We don't know. I'm a lead investigator on something called the, the ED Innovation Trial led by Gail Dionofrio at Yale. It is a multi-site trial. And when I say multi-site, I mean multi. It's huge. We have over 20 ERs around the country, many of whom are treating people with baseline fentanyl use. The trial is comparing a short-term seven-day injectable buprenorphine versus sublingual. We've enrolled over 600 people from around the country, including Florida, we are not seeing correlation between fentanyl use and incidence of precipitated withdrawal. It's just not showing up. Now, I'm not saying it's not there. There could be selection biases in terms of how you get into the trial. You know, there should be some nuances there. But if this were a game-changing event, I think that we'd see more of it in the study. I'm just very curious why we're not seeing more. And I'm really wondering if there's different layers of complexity with fentanyl use that are not just pharmacologic. In particular, when you use fentanyl, often smoked, and it produces a very, very rapid onset, very strong high that tends to wear off fairly quickly. You can have these lipophilic residual metabolites that stay in the system but the actual intoxication, the euphoric high is quick on, quick off. So there's a whole impulsivity around fentanyl use that is plausibly, now I'm not saying definitively, but plausibly different than with heroin. Part of starting buprenorphine is waiting, is having abstinence till you've achieved withdrawal. We're definitely seeing that patients using fentanyl appear to struggle in a way that seem to be less common with heroin. It could be that we're actually, it's not about the pharmacology of a high affinity, high efficacy lipophilic molecule versus something else. It could be that could be host characteristics, so to speak, around behaviors that are driving some of these really bad outcomes around precipitated withdrawal that are being reported. There's just a ton of questions. 
in the current state in front of me, if there was a patient who said they've been using fentanyl and they were convincingly in withdrawal, meaning they had big pupils, they're yawning, they've got sweat, piloerection, these kinds of things, I would treat them with high dose. I wouldn't hesitate. The other thing that comes up, the clinical opioid withdrawal scale developed by, in part by Walter Ling in an era when there was no fentanyl. What if part of the problem is we're using the wrong instrument? What if the pattern of sort of physiology of fentanyl use is such that the cow score overestimates the actual withdrawal state in a way that it didn't with heroin? So that people who really need to wait longer because of those metabolites are still working their way through the system are being started too early. That's the other piece. That's why this question is so complicated. In the end, I guess I'll say again, I think if someone is definitively in withdrawal, there's no question, then I think the dosing strategy is probably better to go high because their overall level of physical dependence because of fentanyl will be much greater. And at some level, you have to match that physical dependence with your replacement drug, which is buprenorphine. And they might need much higher doses, 24 or 32, to feel well versus someone who was using heroin. It raises a lot of questions, what both of you are saying. And part of it is, what are we treating? What's addiction? And are you merely and understandingly have to do this in order to save a person's life? replacing one opioid agonist with another opioid agonist. I'm going to use the word addiction, and I'm using that dangerously because it's not quite the same, but are you replacing one street-induced, provided, managed addiction with an addiction to, uh, to, to, to Suboxone? It's confusing to a lot of people. That's something that, as a clinic provider, as a long-term provider, as an addiction specialist, that's kind of a, a question that I have to struggle with every day, and I should. It's a really challenging question with a lot of pragmatic and philosophical dimensions to it, that the acute provider who's starting, right? And that's in some ways, that's what I think this podcast is for, is for the person who's getting somebody started. They don't need to wrestle with those things. Because what we know in the short term is that you take two people or you take 100 people, you split them in half. One of them with an opioid use disorder, you treat with buprenorphine and the other you don't. The mortality in the person you don't treat is going to be double, triple, quadruple the person that you treat. So at some level, you can just kind of retreat to, okay, there's a lot of known unknowns here and complexities, but in the short term, I know that if I want to keep you alive, I need to get you started right now. I applaud you for this work in the study. I think it's something that needed to be looked at and quantified in the way that you're doing it. I'm sure there's more work to do. What about the follow-up? Do those who have insurance or other people, can they, if they need 24 milligrams a day, I'm just picking a number, how accessible is that? You fix them, they're better than they discharge. What, where do you they know, go? Ariana, given, you know, you've got such a broad sort of experience around the country. What do you think? Well, I mean, we find that patients do follow up. So I know there was the results from Gail D'Onofrio's, her landmark article that was in JAMA in 2015, where just giving the right medication at the right time to the right patient doubled that patient's likelihood of being in treatment in one month. At my facility, at certain times, we've had a 97% follow-up rate for folks when we stabilize them with the right amount of medication that makes them feel better and believe in it. 
And we are finding the same results across the country. Uh, you know, this is not something isolated to California. In some way, shape or form, we've been assisting 25 states in doing this work. And these results are reproducible. It's not just in California, but across the country. It's just giving the right medication at the right time to a patient who needs it, keeping it pretty simple and giving them the right amount quickly to make them comfortable. The follow-up piece is very important. We make sure that we have places for folks to land, and we have not had trouble finding that in all of the places that we've been supporting across the country and this is that we're helping implement in a very pragmatic way, trying to keep it simple. And that's really important because we just want to make it from the patient's perspective, they're suffering, they're in withdrawal, they're feeling very sick, that they get the medication that helps them at that moment, and then they have an easy way to follow up. And so just creating that scenario changes lives. I always say when we're talking to folks, when we're talking to physicians across the country, what do I need to get started? I started uh, the program that I'm currently still doing in a matter of six weeks because we just wanted to get this medication to the right people and, and stabilize them. By doing it quickly, we saw how much it worked. Of course, we fine-tune it. Of course, it's not always perfect. And we do it just like any other issue that we're trying to tackle, see what's going wrong, how we can improve it. That's what we're seeing, it, like I said, across the country. Is Sounds like your 30, 60, 90-day data is fairly impressive. If we look specifically at the JAMA study, I believe it's said something like 70% of the patients were on Medi-Cal. So they had some type of insurance. What do we do to implement something like this beyond the emergency room? And add into that the, the question with the whole X waiver. We initiated the program thinking, well, at least they could go to an, a methadone program. I guess I would say that we can't let really bad decision-making, historically bad decision-making, mind-boggling, right, that you could make some of these decisions, but they're being made that limit access to life-saving treatment after ER treatment. We can't let that get in the way of doing common-sense interventions that work for 12, 24, 48 hours. That's 12, 24, 48 hours that someone might figure out how to get insurance or might figure out how to find a clinic that, that might, God forbid, they have to pay for out of pocket or do something that they otherwise might have overdosed or disengaged altogether from treatment. It's very sad, but I never want people to not treat someone with opioid withdrawal with buprenorphine because they're worried about what's going to happen next. You don't need to. That is a system problem. It's so incredibly fixable in this era of telehealth. It's just crazy. But you still just got to do what you know how to do, which is treat the person in front of you. It transforms medicine into something it should be, where we, where we talk for the benefit of the patient. We try to transform what we're doing for the benefit of, of our patients. That community-wide effort to meet people where they're at. You asked about how do you make sure folks are getting that dose outpatient. I really do believe that, especially in rural settings, what we do in the emergency department and hospital can set the stage for what's acceptable in the community. When we find that we're helping folks and they feel so much better, that's continued. I have patients where I'm just nice, talk to them, and if they're not ready for buprenorphine, I offer harm reduction, and they cry because they say this is the nicest any medical professional's ever been to me. And I'm sad that they cry because that means that maybe it hasn't gone the same before and they finally felt safe to disclose what's going on with them. And I think that's really important. And to get that through an entire community that's supporting that person. Do you have any sense of how many deaths 
you have avoided by statistics such as from the coroner's office? Do you have any sense of that at all? We don't. The, the data are all crazy, right? Because fentanyl has moved into California. This is the thing is that I'm really happy that buprenorphine is spreading and the bridge model is spreading. But we also have to be really honest that it's not working. It's not working. Deaths are going up. Fentanyl is so terrible that this piece of this, the CA bridge and getting emergency departments going, it's not enough. It's much better. It's incredibly better, but it's not enough. And so despite a lot of investment across the country, overdose deaths are not going down, they're going up. But if you could somehow follow those who went through your clinic, either one of you, and then follow them compared to the people who didn't and where the fatal overdose rates were the highest, my suspicion would be that the folks that you touch, hopefully, would be less. And not only because of just giving them the, the right amount of medication, but the teacher of mine said, there's a pill that we often don't realize we're giving people, and that's called hope. That's right. That's right. No, absolutely. That sense of belonging and uh, meaning and hope. In full disclosure, that, that study is not ongoing. We're, we're hopefully beginning to start that study. So we've got a great team. One of the things that I learned, and you would think having been in psychiatry as many years that you, you know, when you find something new, you go, oh, I should have known that. Because uh, I spent a lot of time in addiction work when I was younger in New York City at Beth Israel. Oh, okay. The Bernstein Institute. Are you all familiar with the Bernstein Institute? It doesn't exist anymore. The message from talking to the four or five physicians that we have interviewed, and they've been incredibly honest, is that they've come to realize they cannot do this alone. Right. And when you said that you have text messaging with people and you're doing stuff, you're telling them that they're not alone. And, and that, that, that's just, we'll just use a simple word, good. <laughs> no, you, you got it. I couldn't agree with you more. That's right. There's some groundbreaking work that obviously you guys are doing with the high-dose buprenorphine, but that's not part of the SAMHSA recommendations at this point. Looking towards the future, you think there's going to be some changes in the federal guidelines? That's a good question. I think we need prospective comparative data before that they would probably move that needle. I'm really thrilled, you know, working with Gil D'Onofrio and others to plan that study where we randomize and compare people and how they do. I think that that's probably what's going to be needed to, to move the needle. Dr. Andrew Herring and Ariana Campbell, physician assistant, thank you, both of you, so much for joining us. Very, very interesting information, which I'm sure our doctors will put to good use. Thank you. Thank you for having us. It's been a pleasure.